Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm walking down 18th Street by 6th Ave, past the Metro Pavilion. And I see this line outside. And I'm saying, what are you guys doing? And they're saying, "Um, we're going to the chocolate show. I was like, the chocolate show? That's Mark Christian, chocolate historian, critic, and philosopher. I didn't get a PhD or anything like that, but I got to tell you, I had earned a CHD. Chocolate doctor. A doctor of chocolate, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Dr. Chocolate is such a legend that a rave review from him can propel a new bar to fame and fortune. But back in the early 2000s, gourmet chocolate wasn't on his radar. I get in there, and I'm walking around, and I instantly, I caught on that, you know what? This is the same crowd as in Amsterdam with the (laughs) cannabis. The room was vibing almost the same. And they were such a captive, passionate group. At the time, Mark was managing events around the world, including the Cannabis Cup. Now, I'm a non-user, but my business partner is more than a user. (laughs) He's wake and bake and, and shake the flake all day long. And as he poked around, his spidey sense told him that maybe he'd found the next big recreational substance. I had an encounter with uh, a gentleman named Alessio Tessier. He, with his sister, owned a company called Amade. And this guy was speaking in, in such, you know, classic highfalutin terms of this legacy and lore of chocolate. And he's dressed in this Armani suit that's just, you know, cut to the max. And right away, my BS detector went off, you know? You know, it's sort of like, don't bullshit the bullshitter, okay? What are you doing? But he says, no, 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 you don't understand. He's telling me about how he has this exclusive deal with this place called Chihuahua. The women, it was primarily a woman-led cooperative. They would sun-dry the beans on the uh, the plaza of the church, you know, every season and so forth. There are only 740 acres. And he went on and on and on and on. And I was just saying, come on, chocolate is, you know, it's Halloween candy. What are you talking about? So Alessio gave Mark a Chihuahua bar to try. It was massive. You know, Chihuahua is heavy on the palate. It's big. It's the blueberry pie of chocolate. It's got massive blueberry appeal. Chihuahua was considered the greatest chocolate on earth at that time. And Alessio Tessieri had stolen it. 
He had tiptoed into the den of Valrona, the French kingpin of gourmet chocolate, which once held exclusive control over the supply, and pried it right out of their hands. Alessia was the bad boy of chocolate, the enfant terrible, the young Italian who refused to play by the French rules. And he wasn't bullshitting the bullshitter. There really was only a tiny supply of chihuahua beans coming from a single isolated valley on the mountainous Venezuela coast. And it really was dried by hand by the women of Chihuahua on the town's church plaza. And those three factors, the beans, the place, and the care, they set it apart. For years, Valrona had enjoyed a lock on Chihuahua and on the world of specialty chocolate. It was the most famous company and Chihuahua was its most coveted bar. But it never paid that much of a premium to the Chihuahua cooperative for those beans. Because back then, nobody paid more for beans just because they tasted good. Cacao wasn't wine. It was treated more like corn, a commodity. But that changed the day Alessia Tessieri stole Chihuahua away. What Alessio understood was that there was a world of people who thought of chocolate like wine. And they were willing to pay a lot for a great experience. And that meant great cacaos like Chihuahua were worth way more than any of the chocolate companies realized. And as everyone else in the chocolate business figured that out, all eyes fell on Latin America, cacao's birthplace. If there were more Chihuahuas out there, villages harboring beautiful old varieties from cacao's pre-industrial golden era, that's where they'd be. The great cacao gold rush was on. It was always a search of gold, but actually the cacao is the gold. <laughs> and eventually, it was going to lead right to Volker Lehmann's Bolivian doorstep and make him wonder why he ever got sucked in in the first place. Sometimes I think, oh, all this for a damn bar of chocolate. Kaleidoscope and iHeart Podcasts. This is Obsessions, Wild Chocolate. I'm Rowan Jacobson. Chapter 3, The Awakening. Let's talk about that fabled place called Chihuahua, Wow Chihuahua, Chihuahua Cacao. It's quite musical. People elevate it, levitate it as, you know, the Vatican of chocolate. The Chihuahua Holy War began in 1990 when Alessio Tessieri and his sister Cecilia launched their chocolate company, Amade. Amade was this upstart out of Italy, a brother and sister team. Kind of like, you know, Phineas and Billie Eilish, right? Like most small chocolatiers, Amade didn't make its own chocolate. Instead, it bought product from one of the handful of giant companies that made chocolate from beans. That practice is still common. Amade wanted to be a very high-end chocolatier, and that meant they needed a supply of top-notch chocolate. And in the 1990s, that meant doing something no Italian ever wants to do. They needed to suck up to France. French chocolate making goes back quite a ways, and like everything of French haute couture, they regarded themselves at the highest pinnacle. In this case, there was no question where the particular sucking up needed to take place. They go to tan lamitage which is south of Lyon in France, to the house of Valrona. Valrona had the best supply of Grand Cru-level chocolate in the world. Valrona had this ooh-la-la reputation back then and even still today. 
It's highly renowned, highly regarded. Every new chocolate maker who wanted to enter the upper echelon had to make the pilgrimage to Tain L'Hermitage and prostrate themselves before the lords of chocolate. And that's what Alessia and Cecilia did after waiting months for an appointment. The story goes, these young Italians show up and the French snub them, which is kind of a national trait, you know, with all apologies to the French people in the world. Uh, they said, nah, you, you're, you're too below our standard. We, we can't deal with you. Sent away empty-handed. You know, come back when you've reached a sufficient level of cultural enlightenment. They were feeling, as I said, snubbed. They went back to Italy, you know, with their tails between their legs, and, and they were like, hmm, we'll remember that. Not only did they remember it, they devoted their lives to avenging the insult. Which basically was kind of a declaration of war, as some people saw it. And you know what happens when France and Italy clash. I mean, think about it. You got Prada and Hermes. You've got Armani and Louis Vuitton. This is a rivalry. So Alessio and Cecilia came up with a new business plan. Cecilia would learn to make chocolate from the beans, and Alessio would figure out where to get the good stuff. Alessio spent the 1990s hustling. He traversed Latin America, meeting with farmers, tasting beans, doing everything he could to make himself the ultimate insider. And that work paid off. By the 2000s, Amade was making some of the most coveted single-origin chocolate bars in the world. But Alessio had just begun, and he was dead set on securing the most prized beans of all. Chihuahua. He worked at it for years, slowly earning trust on the ground, building relationships, buying new uniforms for the baseball team. They do whatever pretty much it takes, so to speak. Not only were they bearing gifts, but they also pledged to pay in advance. That's pretty good. Ultimately, it came down to cold, hard cash. Amade offered to triple the price Valrona was paying and to pay up front. And it worked. In 2004, the coup was complete. The Chihuahua Cooperative sent registered letters to Valrona and other chocolate makers. All of its beans would be going to Amade, and only Amade had the right to use its name. For years, rumors have persisted that this war got really nasty. We've heard all sorts of things that, you know, somebody got shot from Valrona over this and ba da 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 da. Not exactly. What did happen was that in 2002, the director of Venezuela's cacao buying network was machine gunned in his car. There's no evidence it was related to the battle for Chihuahua. But Venezuela, along with many other parts of Latin America, has come to lead the world in violent crime. And business, even the chocolate business, can get caught up in it. The real lesson of Chihuahua is that sane companies were willing to go to ridiculous lengths in an incredibly dangerous region, simply to tie up beans with great flavor because they knew that flavor could set them apart. But why was that? What made those Chihuahua beans so special? Well, it certainly had something to do with the valley, the rivers, the soil, the trees themselves. But the real secret to Chihuahua's greatness, it was those women handling the beans on the church plaza. Maybe you've already figured it out. It all came down to fermentation. How big a factor is the fermentation? Like huge. Fermentation, man, is definitely 50% of the quality of the final chocolate. Fermentation is critical. Okay, I know that word has already popped up a few times, but believe it or not, a lot of our story hinges on it. And you're going to hear it again. Fermentation. 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 And again. 
what the hell is fermentation? This is the first step in the careful process of making the world's most popular flavor. Just like grapes don't taste like wine, raw cacao beans don't taste much like chocolate. You need microbes to consume the raw material and transform it into those wonderfully aromatic compounds. Cacao seeds come out of their pods covered in sweet, sticky, sugary pulp. When the beans are removed from the pods, the sugary pulp surrounding the bean begins to ferment. If you heap up those beans in a pile or put them in a wooden box, wild yeasts in the environment will turn that sugar into alcohol. And then bacteria will turn the alcohol into vinegar. The acid breaks open the cells in the beans, spills the contents together, and initiates a lot of crazy chemistry. In the process, heat is generated, and the overall effect of this mild, natural treatment is the development of a desirable brown color and a fine, full flavor. Within days, nutty, spicy, whiny, fruity, and floral notes appear. From there, you just have to get the beans nice and dry, give them a little roast, then a slow grind, and you've got chocolate. Because of the terroir, because of how it's fermented, the things in the air, the yeasts and the bacteria that are contributing to fermentation, and the soil, and all these things you know you hear about in wine, you're going to taste the same thing with chocolate. But fermentation is a delicate art. You mess up the fermentation process, you don't do the turns on time, you can get absolutely disgusting cacao out of great raw material. And what does that taste like? It's more like uh, mushroom, rotten socks. Or ham chocolate <laughs> or cheese chocolate. You get some really right. nasty flavors. Wet sock chocolate, compost chocolate. Most cacao farmers just want to get their beans sold as quickly as possible. So they don't take the time to do a proper fermentation. Those beans will always be bitter and boring. But it's the right decision for the farmers. Remember, this is a dirt-poor commodity. Time is money. Why go to extra steps to improve flavor if you aren't going to be paid anything extra? But Chihuahua was different. When the chocolate from Chihuahua developed its great reputation in the 1990s, fermentation was practically a lost art. The women of Chihuahua were one of the few groups doing it properly, and it showed. But by the 2000s, demand for great cacao was surging. A new wave of upstarts like Amade was cutting out the middlemen, scouring the Americas for the next Chihuahua, making their own chocolate from the beans, and raising the art of chocolate to new heights. And although that first wave was European, it stayed small until it reached the other side of the Atlantic. There, it found an eager market obsessed with quality and authenticity, and it became a full-blown tsunami. I'd have them taste a grocery store chocolate at first, then I'd have them taste three bars that tasted like cacao. People would be like, yep, we're in, we love it. We had 50 bars. We went to 100, and then a couple years later, we probably had 200, and then you come full circle to today, we have probably 550 bars on the shelf. I, I haven't counted in a long time. Holy moly. Every gold rush brings winners and losers, and the craft chocolate revolution was no different. A lot of dinosaurs fell by the wayside, too slow to react to the shift in taste, and a few nimble players rushed in to fill the gap. Most surprising of all was a small deli in Salt Lake City that came out of nowhere to become the ultimate champion of wild chocolate. A Cinderella story after the break.
Want a taste of some of this God-level chocolate? We got you covered. Kaleidoscope has joined forces with Louisa Abram and Stetler Chocolate to make a special box to go along with this very podcast. Taste what has driven many to near madness at www.stetler-chocolate.com. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. In the early 2000s, a lot of Americans were having the kind of epiphany that Mark Christian had at the Amade booth at the chocolate show, including Matt Caputo. I discovered that good chocolate shouldn't just taste like burned material diluted with loads of extra fat and vanilla. Matt's the owner of Caputo's Market and Deli in Salt Lake City. And today, he's the top importer of specialty chocolate in North America. We now sell to over 3,000 wholesale accounts, everyone from Whole Foods to, you know, your mom and pop cheese shop on the corner in all 50 states. But back in 2000? We basically had a really similar set to what you'd see in the grocery store. Just cheap stuff uh, that I found out later didn't taste like cacao. One of my friends that I respected really well just kind of said, you know, man, your chocolate set is really embarrassing. Matt was crushed. Caputo's wasn't just a market. It was an extension of his own personal tastes, a reflection of his abilities as a curator. He knew he had to get up to speed. So he embarked on a pilgrimage to the one place where he might find enlightenment, the Fancy Food Show in New York City. I'm walking the aisles of the Italian pavilion, and man, those Italians wear suits so well. They're just beautiful suits, all these dudes in suits and ladies in, in suits. And so here I am, this punk kid in my you know, T-shirt from Salt Lake City, and I just standing at the counters, patiently waiting for someone to talk to me. Finally, a woman at one of the booths took pity on him and sat him down at a table and performed the ritual that has initiated many a convert into the mystery cult of fine chocolate. She said, I'm going to let you taste these three chocolates. They only have two ingredients, cacao beans and sugar. She says, they're all made on the same equipment with the same recipe. The only difference is where the cacao beans come from. 
She says, this first one that you're going to taste is from Ecuador. And you're going to notice that it is very earthy and very nutty, and there's not a lot of acidity. And so, okay, I taste it. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, wow, that's really uncanny. That, that does taste like that. Now, these beans, she said, again, same ingredients, same percentage, produced on the same equipment. But this time, they come from the Sambirano Valley of Madagascar. This one will taste like fruit, like tart raspberries and, and citrus. And I'm preparing myself for very slight differences. I pop it in my mouth. It didn't taste like chocolate. It tasted like fresh tropical fruit. I could feel myself like falling down the rabbit hole. And I knew this didn't taste like candy. This tasted like the food of the gods. When he headed home, Matt immediately got Caputo's up to speed. I spent the next year, let's say, fleshing out our chocolate set, you know, say picking the 20 best producers that I had read about. And again, I did a lot of studying along the way, a lot of talking to experts in the industry and doing a lot of blind tasting. Like truly blind tasting. My wife would actually help me. We would do it in a pitch black room and taste like 16 different chocolates at a time. The standouts went on the shelf at Caputo's. Brands like Amadei Domori at the time, um, those were the Italian ones. Some of the French were like Michel Cuisel, uh, Bonat, Valrona, Pralu. Sharpenberger was the only American one at that time. I probably fleshed out with about 50 bars, probably from about 20 producers. And the shelf kept getting bigger. And it, it probably took up, instead of two feet, let's say 20 feet. The new bars were a lot pricier than the old ones, like 10 bucks instead of two. But to Matt's amazement, it didn't matter. All he had to do was give customers one taste of this brave new world. And they were loading up their cart with chocolate bars. Viva la Revolucion. Caputo's was just one of many stores across the States where that kind of transformation was happening in the mid-2000s. Chocolate could be an experience, and people were eager to have it, to taste their way through Venezuela and Ecuador and the San Barano Valley. And websites like Mark Christian sprung up to guide them. And then, in the midst of all this cocoa craziness, a new bar appeared. It was wild and refined. It didn't taste like any of the others, not even close. While every other chocolate in the world was made with cacao that had been domesticated and adapted to farms, this was primordial. And you're getting this taste of way back when. It's a time machine. And so unless you're the age of like Methuselah or old as diamonds, you've never had anything like that before. Nobody had. The bar had a funny name. Instead of the Grand Cru's of Valrona and Bonat, this was Cru Sauvage. Wild. Its timing could not have been better. It was about to become the buzziest bar in the bush. And drive Volker Lehman even deeper into the jungle in search of more. The word gold uh, raises immediately the eyebrow of a person. If you say, oh, I have gold on my land, then everybody feels like you are rich. But I know more people who got um, poor than rich uh, looking for gold. They didn't see the real gold. After the break, a whole hill of beans.
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I never had a business plan. You know, like uh, so many towns and this and then and then and then a full-blown business plan. I never had. By 2005, Felschlein, the Swiss company that was making chocolate with vulgar beans, was so confident in the unique appeal of Crusavage that it was ready to roll it out at full commercial scale. That meant no more cutesy experiments with 400 kilos. They needed as much as Volker could possibly get. I said, yeah, okay, uh, let's try with a container first. And so A shipping container holds 15 tons of cacao. That was the minimum Felschling needed to make the bar. But for a solo player like Volker, that's a huge hill of beans. Tranquilidad could produce only a few tons. The rest he was going to have to buy from other harvesters in the region. Once again, he'd be navigating land that was precious to some of the most dangerous people in the world. Ranchers, illegal loggers, and narcos. And he was going to need a ton of cash. He was going to have to build facilities in the rainforest where the beans could be fermented to his specifications. And he was going to have to spend all that money many months before he'd finally get paid for the beans. The biggest problem was getting finance to get like $50,000 together. So he asked Felschlein to front him some dough, and they were not interested. They'd been around for 100 years because they didn't let romance cloud their business vision. They basically said, you get us the beans, we'll pay you a decent price. But the getting part, that's on you. Eventually, he scored a loan from a Swiss company that specializes in fair trade foods. They gave me money, but just on, on my blue eyes. You know. And they said, okay, uh, we hope you come back with cacao, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, um, how to do that? Well, for starters, he bought himself a dirt bike and rode hundreds of miles across the range, visiting the towns in the region that had cacao and setting up buying posts. It was a rough ride, but it was better than the horse. He hired people to buy for him in each town and told them to use tarps to keep the beans dry. But the only tarps they had were moth-eaten ones made from cow and jaguar skins. So he flew a bunch of new ones in from Santa Cruz and handed them out. He kept in touch with everyone by shortwave radio. When the beans were ready, he drove his bike to each town, loaded them onto a riverboat, and sent them on a 2,000-mile journey to La Paz. Then he flew to La Paz and rented an old racquetball court to use as a warehouse. He didn't sleep for a week while he waited for the beans to arrive. Finally, they showed up. He immediately opened the sacks, and not good. About 10% had turned moldy on the river trip. So he hired eight people to help him, and they spent the next two weeks on the floor of the racquetball court, sorting 18 tons of tiny beans by hand. When he had 15 good tons, he packed them into a container and trucked it over a 15,000-foot mountain pass and along some of the world's most death-defying roads to the sea, where a feeder vessel took it to Panama and loaded it onto a giant container ship, which carried it through the canal, across the Atlantic, and into port in Rotterdam where yet another feeder vessel carried it up the Rhine to Switzerland, where, at long last, Felschling transformed it into Sauvage. It was an enormous feat, and soon the pros were getting their hands on their first bars. One of them was Matt Caputo. I'm not exactly sure when I first heard of Sauvage. You know, you hear of a bunch of things, you don't at first know what is going to turn out to be something legitimately super cool or what's going to turn out to be something that's, you know, marketing smoke and mirrors. So Matt was skeptical. He'd tried Felstein's chocolate before and never been that impressed. But that was about to change. When I popped it into my mouth, I immediately recognized that it was vastly more interesting than anything else that they made that I had previously tried. You know, sometimes I talk about chocolate like music, and this was like, you know, a classic symphony orchestra, just beautiful. Matt wasn't alone. The world's chocoholics went gaga for Cru Sauvage, and Felschley knew it needed more beans. This time, 30 tons instead of 15. Tranquilidad, the quality. That was the part I was most interested in. And Felschley pushed me into the volume. You know. Uh, I was never interested in the volume. Volker was worried. He pulled off a miracle the first time, but he didn't know if he could do it again. But he knew if he couldn't supply the beans to Felschlein, somebody else would. So he made it happen, paying dozens of middlemen to be his buyers, building fermentation houses in the bush, chartering Cessna so he could check on quality, renting storage rooms in seedy towns and paying guards to watch them, rolling every euro back into the business and borrowing more besides. He'd become Bolivia's cacao kingpin. Any of Bolivia's cocaine kingpins would have recognized the fundamentals of his business, and they'd have recognized the next development too, competition. As word got out about wild Bolivian cacao, new players jumped into the game. There were many copies, bad copies, good copies of what I did. So it became actually big, really big. Most of the newbies were nonprofits interested in sustainable developments. They had lots of foundation money to spend and little interest in turning a profit. 
the law of supply and demand took its course. The price for wild Bolivian cacao exploded from 40 cents a pound to more than $2. Things got totally out of hand. Uh, prices went up, skyrocketing, and NGOs flooding in, uh, making projects. In a way, this was mission accomplished. Volker's dream of creating a new forest economy, one that preserved the environment while simultaneously bringing money to the area, had come true. The people were getting real money for their cacao. Their lives improved. And their interest in the chocolatales returned. It was textbook sustainable development. Except for everything it did for the rainforest, it wasn't sustainable for Volker. Neither Fauchelin nor any other commercial buyer could afford to pay enough for the beans to cover his costs. And by 2010, he found himself priced out of the market he'd created. It was like 10 years of turmoil. And I said, this is not what I, I, signed, I signed for. He needed a new supply, cacao that hadn't yet exploded in price. And that was one advantage he still had over the competition. All these newcomers only knew how to buy beans from the most obvious players. But Volker had 20 years of connections all over the Bolivian Amazon. And he worked his connections for any leads on new sources of wild cacao. And finally, he got a good one. On the Mamare River, in Yurikare tribal territory, were vast supplies of wild cacao. He got in touch with the chief, who said the Yurikare had been selling to local dealers for very low prices. And they might be very interested in a new arrangement. So Volker made plans for an expedition to make his pitch. And that, of course, was when I got in touch with him. And if he ever thought, well, this is a pretty weird spot to bring a journalist, he never told me. Uh, you grab on a hold to this? Yeah. That's the way. Watch your fingers. Yep. Uh, that don't get in, in between. So, All right. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. The river village is called El Combate, named for a battle in one of Bolivia's endless border squabbles with its neighbors. And it still has the feel of a place that doesn't really belong to anywhere. And the village itself, it's a disaster zone. A thin sheet of river is flowing through the settlement. The boats are tied up to the huts. Chickens perch on posts, trying to come up with plan B. I wasn't recording audio back on that 2010 trip, but the memories are still etched in Volker's mind. It was in a, from a production point of view in a miserable situation. Hanging from the mango trees are bags of very sad-looking cacao. The cacao was badly treated, and due to the weather condition, I saw that the cacao was, wasn't so good. So that was a little disappointing right there. But I thought, oh, let's, let's talk to the people, find out what are their needs. We gather on a platform in the center of the village, and Volker makes his pitch. The argument uh, was mainly that I will come all the years and I will buy the cacao at their spot so they don't have to travel and that we were, we were working together and improving the quality because I needed a better quality than what they have. And so I said, okay, if you do all this, then I can give you a very good price. To sweeten the deal, Volker's brought entertainment. From his pack, he produces some paper and crayons and holds a cacao drawing contest for the kids. I said, okay, we give a prize to the best painting uh, with the theme of cacao. What would you paint about cacao? And I still have them somewhere. 
Soon dozens of pages of golden pods and crazy cacao tree people are covering the school benches. And we're all laughing hysterically. And that turns out to be the exact pitch Volker needed to make all along. The women of Kambada have been watching us and they're smiling at this goofy German dude drawing cacao monsters with their kids. And soon they and Volker are chatting away like old friends. And then losing the tensions uh, to the moms because finally the moms, they, uh, all the ladies, they were in favor. By the next morning, we leave Kambade with a deal. Volker will build them a fermentation center so they can dry their cacao properly. And he'll send a boat to buy the cacao on the spot at a premium price. We planned on spending the night in a riverside hut that belonged to our guide's brother. But when we arrive, we're greeted by a scene out of a horror movie. Somebody has spent the day opening thousands of pods there and drying the beans in the hut. Ants are swarming every surface, gorging on the sugary juice. By now, I have a healthy fear of Amazonian ants. They move in waves across the jungle floor, attacking anything in their path. Bugs, frogs, lizards, journalists. Rowan, he came with these flip-flops or sandals he has, and I said, oh, this is no good, and he did the ant dance. Ow! Ah, fuck, 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 fuck. True story. Years ago, a drunken man in Bolivia passed out against a tree that contained a big ant nest. He never woke up. These ants are, have no pity. They don't respect any repellent or, or stuff like that. To stay the night with these ants would be suicide. We have to find another hut. But we only have an hour before dark. Our guide says he knows a place nearby, down a side channel of the river. So we head for it. It's on stilts, sticking out of the flooded channel. And there's an old couple standing in the open door, staring at us in shock. And so are the piglets and chickens they've rescued from the flood. The funny part was that we had to share our bedroom with some piggies. Yes, we're all in the one-room hut together. We string our hammocks above the piglets and climb in. Their smoked predecessors hang from the rafters above us. And the uh, mother pig was in a different shed, uh, screaming all night. Uh, they wanted the babies. Like, where are you? Where are you? And the little piggies were answering, we're here, we're here. Bats beat the air in front of my face all night long as they come and go through the open hut. I lie wide awake, suspended between pig squeals and pig sausage. Volker snores contentedly beside me. That was a very, a very special night. Um, it never happened ever, ever again. That was a very, very special moment in time. Yeah, yeah I still have nightmares. By the time we drag ourselves back to Tranquilidad a few days later, Volker has put himself a couple of years ahead of the competition. If all goes as planned, he'll have enough cacao to make Felschlein very happy, to pay back his loans, and maybe even to save a bit of money for the first time in his life. And the story I write about him in our journey is going to help juice the world of cacao hunting as a whole new generation of extreme chocolate makers begins racing to get their hands on incredible beans. But that's going to plunge them into the deep end of the rainforest. And at times, they're going to find themselves way over their heads. I don't like guns, and I've never wanted us to have a gun. To me, the idea of having a gun owned by the company, out in the company vehicle, is terrifying. But, I mean, you saw the stacks of cash in our office. We're going out there with thousands of dollars on a daily basis. 
next week, we dive into the dark side of big, bad chocolate. Wild Chocolate is a Kaleidoscope production with iHeart Podcasts. Hosted and reported by me, Rowan Jacobson, and produced by Shane McKeon at Nice Marmot Media. Edited by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadakudor. Sound design and mixing by Soundboard. Original music composition by Spencer Stevenson, a.k.a. Botany. Production help from Vahini Shori. From iHeart, our executive producers are Katrina Norvell and Nikki Itor. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Kostas Linos, Oz Wallachan, Aaron Kaufman, Will Pearson, Conal Byrne, Bob Pittman, Daria Daniel, and the team at Stetler, who are helping us make a very special chocolate of our own. That's right, we're working with Louisa and others to protect the rainforest and make delicious Amazonian chocolate. Visit www.stetler-chocolate.com to taste it for yourself. That's www.stetler-chocolate.com. And if you want to hear more of this type of content, nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. Please spread the love wherever you listen. Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.